Good morning, everyone. My name is Nicole, and today our reading is coming from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 14, as you can see up on the screen. But before we read together, let's pray to our great God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the joy and privilege and blessing it is to assemble as the body of Christ. We thank you that as Christ died for us and was raised again, we are raised with him to a new life, to a transformed life in him. And Lord, we pray that as we gather around your word, as Ross opens it up to us, that you would quicken again in us that joy of living for you, of living new lives in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 14. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Well, thanks, thank you, Nicole. And uh, yep, actually, we need to go back one. What? If, oh, that's the one I'm on. Yep. Okay. The the confusing screens. The biggest one is the one you don't look at. Um, okay. The um, yeah. Uh, today I'm going to do something a bit different to what I'd normally do. Normally, I would open a passage of scripture and explain it and then go to life. Today I'm going to start with life and then go to scripture and then uh, come back to life again. Um, Niebuhr wrote, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Today I want to share some first-hand stories of people in difficult circumstances who accepted what they could not change but changed what they could. And I want to look back to over 50 years of Christian ministry to people who made substantial changes and see what we can learn from that. So I've got about four or five short stories. And the first one's about environmental change. 
In 2002, I visited Tear Fund projects in southwest Bangladesh. Now, the Sandabans mangrove forest is one of the largest such forests in the world, situated in the delta of major rivers, including the Ganges and Brahmaputra rivers. It's home to many threatened species, and one of the largest populations of tigers in the world. Now, huge problems were created when the Sandabans was listed as a World Heritage listing, World Heritage Area. The people who lived there were poor already, um, but being listed as a big national park just made life really difficult. And the community I met with were fishermen, uh, timber getters and, uh, and hunters, and they just simply couldn't do couldn't do that anymore. They could still live within the reserve, but they just had to find new ways of earning a living. And so Tear Fund had a project that helped them to upscale fishing, to develop shrimp and poultry farming industries, and a number of other things that they were able to do in a World Heritage listed area. Now, I'd never met a community more disrupted by environmental protection. And uh, we met with some of the community leaders and I asked them how they felt about, you know, community, you know, environmental protection. And their answer surprised me. And they told me that uh, a, a scientist um, came to live amongst them and he researched the local tigers. And he found that the tigers' favourite food is deer, but they told me he also discovered that the tiger never takes a pregnant deer. Tigers know that their future depends on the survival of the deer. And so they resolved, they said, we've decided to learn from the tigers <coughs> and find environmentally sustainable ways to make a living. Now, these people were scared of tigers. Um, I did say to somebody once, uh, I'd love to see a tiger in the wild. And they say, if you see a tiger in the wild, you're just about to be eaten. And, uh, and I heard lots of tiger attack stories. Um, they said to me, do you notice when we travel, mostly we travel by boat, um, they said they keep well away from the bank uh, because tigers have been known to leap from the bank and take people out of boats. And I heard a story of, of somebody, a pigeon passenger taken off the back of a motorcycle. Now the wide rivers of Bangladesh are no protection as tigers are good swimmers but these people wanted the tiger numbers to regenerate. Now, Psalm 104 describes a host of animals that God created and depicts God rejoicing in all the creatures he has made. Every species that is lost must cause God sorrow. God made a wonderful world and those Bengalis were prepared to change their whole way of life to preserve the, <clears throat> the animals around them. Now, Romans 1 teaches that creation bears witness to God. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Now, we have the Bible, but think for a moment of all the people who, don't, who have no Bibles, and creation is their only witness to God.
What is lost to that witness when species go extinct and when nature is destroyed? What would be lost to that witness if tigers or koalas were to go extinct? My next story involves political change. In mid-1989, I was working for Scripture Union back then, and um, <clears throat> I had some work to do for Scripture Union in Hong Kong before going to the Philippines as a, de as a delegate at the Lausanne Congress of Evangelism that was held in Manila. Now, the Tiananmen Square massacre occurred shortly before I left Australia. Hong Kong was still under British rule at the time, but their return to China was impending, and Hong Kong citizens were very disturbed, and many of them were demonstrating. They were alarmed because the massacred students wanted rights that Hong Kong just took for granted. And I recall um, we were having dinner one night in a restaurant and we uh, shared the table with a, a young American scientist who was doing his PhD research um, in China and he had been in Tiananmen Square and got to know the students who were there pro pro protesting and he was there just a few hours before the massacre took place and, fled, and had fled China and... Um, as he was talking to us, you could, you could pick, you could still feel the fear and the, and the shock and the trauma of what he had just experienced. After two weeks in Hong Kong, experiencing, experiencing the fear of communism, I went to the Lausanne Congress of Manila as one of the 5,000 delegates from around the world, including many from communist countries. Now, I'll never forget a group of grim-faced Russians singing, living for Jesus and dying for him. It certainly wasn't the best music of the Congress, but it was the, the most moving. And disturbing st stories were told from the, the stage of life behind the Iron Curtain. However... In informal conversations, you know, as we sat down with people to eat meals, as we sat beside people on buses going back and forth, delegates from Russia and other Eastern European countries said things that seemed to defy reality. They were saying that communism's on the verge of collapse. And I'd just been in Hong Kong and experiencing the fear there of what was to become inevitable. And we were hearing stories from the stage, but individual people were saying, no, it's, 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 it's just about, it's all on tilt, it's going to collapse. And one of them even said he wanted communism to survive a bit longer so it would be completely discredited and never revived. Now, at the time, I didn't know what to make of it all. I wondered if this could be true, um, were these people deluded, had wishful thinking got out of hand, and I can remember thinking to myself, have these guys been drinking their bath water, or is this really true? I came home, and within a few months, the Berlin Wall was knocked down, and the communist governments in Europe had all collapsed. The Iron Curtain was gone, the Cold War was over and the West breathed easier as the threat of World War faded. That Christmas, I can remember 
sitting in church, singing Christmas carols, and I was very conscious that there were millions and millions of Christians celebrating the birth of Jesus openly for the very first time in their lives. Some of those people were with me at Lausanne, and others were the congregations or the, the people they represented in former communist countries. I had felt the fear of communism six months before. And you could feel it. It's, not, it's one thing knowing these people are scared. It's another thing being there and being with them and feeling the fear they have. And then I witnessed the threat totally disintegrated, disintegrate. The West, Western intelligence and, and the Western press had no inkling that this was going to happen. The events of 1989 took the whole world completely by surprise. Isaiah 40 says he brings princes to naught and reduces of the world reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No longer, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Israel was oppressed by Egyptian slave drivers and God acted. Egypt was disempowered and Israel was delivered. A thousand years later, Israel is in captivity in Babylon, once again being oppressed. God acted, Babylon fell, and Israel was restored to its land. Apart from a few prophets, no one expected these events. Oppressive rulers come and go. Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot. Every generation knew Oppressors arise, but then they turn to dust. And the message of Daniel is that only God is sovereign and only his rule is eternal. Good always overcomes evil in the end because the sovereign God is good. <clears throat> Next story is subversive change. Communism collapsed in Europe, but uh, continued in Asia. Laos is one of those Asian communist countries. Laos is poorer than the surrounding countries, and because Tier Fund concentrates on the poorer countries, we, that's one of the places that we focus on. Lao Christians were heavily are were and are heavily discriminated against and heavily restricted. And when I visited, there were only four registered churches where Christians could meet legally, and as a result, there were a whole host of illegal underground churches that met informally and below the surface of things. That way, the government can claim religious freedom, but only a very limited number of people can legally be Christians. Now, in two, 2006, I visited Laos uh, to do some work for Tier Fund, and some of that was um, visiting with Pim and Kathy, who were sitting over there. Okay, and while I was there, I attended a church service in one of the legal churches. Now, I couldn't understand the language, but I enjoyed 
having fellowship with Christians who live under those sort of restricted circumstances. Now, I recognised the minister because we'd met before at Lausanne, but at the end of the service, he went and stood at the door and he shook my hand, but he wouldn't speak to me. A couple of days later, he visited me and apologised for not talking to me, and then he explained it would have caused trouble because there were government spies in the service, and had he talked to me, shaking hands was one thing, but talking to me would have been another thing, and he'd have been held to account. So I asked him how he, how he felt about spies, and he said, oh, we love spies because they come to church, they have to come to church, they hear the gospel, and they get converted. And then he told me an amazing story. He said, over the years, various spies had been assigned to that church, and quite a few of them had got converted and joined the church fellowship. Now, years before all of this, all church properties in Laos were confiscated by the government, including the one I'd visited. But this one had got its building back. And the way that unfolded, he explained, was the government agents who'd been sent to spy and got converted lobbied the government um, to return the property to the church. And eventually the government agreed to this and a ceremony was held to officially give the property back. When the government announcement a representative announced the formal transfer, when he said, now it's going to become once again the property of the church, and he said that formally, right at that moment, a white dove flew into the church around and above the congregation. Now, there are no white doves in the, in the bird life of Laos. Birds like that are never seen. The people there have never seen a bird like that. Everyone was amazed. And when the government representative saw the dove, he said, the owner has returned. The dove stayed through the service. It was photographed before it flew away and it was never seen again. Both Christians and communists saw it as a sign. Now, those, those Christians had the serenity to accept what they couldn't change, the courage to change what they could, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I think as someone who has had a fair bit of contact with the church in the developing world, um, we can learn much from Christians in the developing world. You know, three-quarters of the world's Christians today are black, and the continent has the smallest population of Christians in North America. Yep. And in the developing world, their po political context is not unlike that of the early church, who faced continual government opposition, yet grew because they were authentic. As in the first century, Christianity today is growing in many places where religious freedom is limited. Now, why that happened is a long story, and we can't go into that, but let me just say this. Governments can do what they like, but nothing can restrict the working of God's spirit. Positive change happens when we love those who oppose us rather than try to bully and control them. 
these Christians could not control the government but could control how they treated others. Habitual change. Thailand is not particularly poor, although tourists think it is. Um, if, if you're ever in Thailand and you think you're seeing poverty, just cross the Mekong River into Laos and you'll see real poverty. Um, but Tear Fund had a project um, some years ago in Thailand in the hills um, up on the Thai-Burma, Thai-Myanmar border. The Aka people <coughs> had fled a war in China, had moved south just to escape the conflict and settled on vacant land. Uh, they built houses, settled down and didn't realise they'd crossed borders. And eventually they discovered, even though they thought they were in China still, they discovered they were in Thailand uh, and they were accidental illegal immigrants and they were not citizens and Tear Fund was assisting them out of poverty. They had adult health education, primary education, biogas energy to fuel houses and assistance in gaining Thai citizenship so they would then gain access to government benefits. And the photos on, on the left you see is a lady in typical ARCA dress. On the right is a guy that we will call Tom, not his real name, um, with one of the project staff. Now, have you ever tried to break a bad habit? While I was there, I heard a wonderful story of habit breaking. It involves Ty, the, the guy in the blue T-shirt. Tom had been an opium addict for 30 years when I met him. Um, but when I met him, he had not... Sorry, he'd been an opium addict for 30 years, but when I'd met him, he'd not touched opium alcohol or tobacco for 15 years. 20 years before, he told me he'd become a follower of Jesus, but he continued to struggle with opium addiction for about five years and trying to overcome it and all that sort of stuff. But, and then one day he said he was fishing and um, he realised that Jesus should rule his life, not drugs. Drugs were really ruling his life. And through prayer and cold turkey, he overcame opium addiction. And from that time on, Tom devoted his life to helping others off opium. Opium's, this, opium grows there. This is a golden triangle. Um, it's, you know, you don't have to buy it. You just pick it. Um, and uh, he was going to help op people off opium and, uh, and he helped the Tear Fund Drug Education Project and taught addicts how to quit. Tom prayed for addicts and supported them through the withdrawal process. He would go from place to place where new addicts lived and he would pray for them. And if they decided to go through the painful withdrawal of cold turkey, he would sit with them and pray with them through it. Now, many people were who, who were helped off the opium also became followers of Jesus. Now, before that project began, every household in those villages that were involved with the project had at least one opium addict in the household. But when I was there, there were no longer any drug addicts in any of those villages. Due to Tom and the drug education team, 
Change in individuals can lead to transformation of whole communities. Tom had the courage to make a change that many would throw in the too hard basket. He also had a change in attitude, which lay behind that change. Instead of self-gratification, serving others became his purpose in life. Now, my last two stories of two young men I knew when I was an inexperienced youth worker as green as grass about 45 years ago. Um, Bob, once again, no real names. Bob's life was a real mess. I'd known him for a while. He was into everything, drug abuse, sexual promiscuity, poor relationships. He was a very bad influence. He was known to the police, but he didn't know I knew that. And one day, Bob came and asked me if I would help him sort his life out. Now, I, I knew what this sort of guy was into, and I remember thinking, Bible college never taught me what I have to do here. Um, Bible college equipped me well to preach sermons, but for what I had to do with a youth worker from Monday to Saturday, it didn't equip me very well. That was 50-something years ago. Um, they've improved a lot in that regard, but I think they could go a lot further. I was in my early years of Christian ministry and just not sure what to do, but this was the challenge I had to accept. And so, not knowing what to do, we agreed to just meet once a week. And I would drive around to where he worked, and I'd pick him up from work, and we had we set up a plan like this. I said, um, Bob, Bob had to choose one thing each week that he would aim to change. And I said, I don't want it to be a big thing. I don't want you to come up saying, I'm going to give up drugs this next week or something like that. I said, I want you to pick up, you know, uh, it had to be something specific, achievable and observable. And, and little things are fine. I want you to choose something that you think you can achieve between now and next week when we meet and we'll talk about how you went. Um, it couldn't be vague, like be nicer or more patient, you know, because who knows? But it had to be clear cut. So between the meetings, Bob had to work on that one change. Now, following, the following week, um, when I picked up Bob, he re and he, to, to report on, you know, it, it, well, each week it, we, Bob would report on his change. If he'd achieved the change, we'd celebrate and set another goal. If he didn't, um, we would talk about what went wrong and, you know, make another plan and have another go and see what happens. Uh, well, the second week, um, when I picked up Bob from work, he was really happy because he'd achieved his first goal. And do you know what his first goal was? It was to have one proper meal a day. Bob was so high all the time, he, he, he wasn't eating. He would, you know, grab, that, grab a pie and wash it down with a few beers, that sort of thing. Um, he wasn't eating properly at all. But eating one meal a day, it wasn't a big, big change, but it was a really good start. And Bob was better nourished and he felt better for it. And he could even feel the difference after one week just with that one change. And he was also confident that he'd succeeded in making one change and he now believed he could change other aspects of his life. Well, we met every week for months and Bob achieved one change after another. I didn't tell him what to change. 
he had to decide that, but I held him accountable to make choices and to put them into action. And after a while, Bob, Bob said to me one day, you know, there's a whole lot of changes are happening um, that whenever on my radar is necessary. And I'd never identified him as my change for a week. He said, I'm sleeping better. I can concentrate more. I've got more energy. I work better. I'm friendlier. Life has structure. People like me. Um, and he realised that good behaviour feeds good behaviour. Every positive change nurtures a better lifestyle. Last story is a guy we'll call Mark. Mark's parents um, had got divorced and he used to come to a youth group I had and one night he said to me he had a difficult decision to make. Um, he was not getting on with his dad and this had escalated to the point where social workers had intervened. Um, and um, all of, of efforts had failed and Mark was given the option of being removed from his father and put into state care. Now that was an attractive option for Mark and um, he said he'd like to give life with dad one last chance. Now once again, I felt inadequate, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I said to him, look I can't do anything about your dad, I don't even know him, I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to you know, knock on the door and um, say I want to talk to you and he agreed that that wouldn't be appropriate. And so I suggested to Mark that he try to change anything that he could think of that would make the relationship better. And I said to him, you can't control your father, but you can control yourself. Instead of fighting with your dad, change what you can change. Now that mightn't work out, but let's just see how it works out. Well, I didn't see Mark for a while, but when I did, I asked him how he was going with his dad. And he said, well, it's great. Everything has improved considerably and they're getting on well. And I reminded him of our previous conversation and asked him, what was the first thing you decided to change? And he said, oh yeah, I, said, I remember that. I decided whenever Dad walked into the room, I'd stay there and not walk out. <laughs> and then he admitted that previously he would walk out whenever his dad appeared. And I could imagine him saying, you know, I don't do anything, it's all Dad. Okay. Now, in families, when one person changes, everyone changes. And the same applies to te teams and groups and workplaces. They're social systems. When one part changes, others adjust. People may not be aware that they change, but they do. You know, somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do, somebody else has to step in. Somebody does too more, you know, does intrudes in somebody else's role, um, you know, people have to adjust. You throw a rock in a pond, it splashes in one place, but leaves ripples through the whole pond. Whenever we change, it doesn't just change us, it also changes others. Now we're going to think of your change story. What's your story of change? What changes have you seen? How did they take place? Uh, what needs to change in the future? How will you cope with things you can't change? We can pray for the courage to change the things we can, the wisdom to know the difference, and God gives serenity, courage, and wisdom. Now let me quickly share 
two Bible principles relevant to change. And this won't take long. Firstly, we seek to change because God accepts us not to gain God's acceptance. God loves us and accepts us just as we are. I mean, God's got a love affair with sinners. He's got a love affair with people who stuff up properly. So we don't have to change first. You know, we come to God as sinners who have nothing to offer and God accepts us like like he accepted the thief on the cross next to Jesus who himself said he deserves to be executed. I don't like executions, but he said he deserved it. Um, we, we, can't clean, we can't clean ourselves up first. We come to Jesus and he will put us right. Jesus died so that we could be cleansed from our sin and God accepts us because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we are like. God wants us to change to be more like Jesus. We change as a response, not to bribe God to be nice to us. Now, Jesus sets us free. Freedom is the central theme of Paul's letters, I believe. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Only Jesus can set us free. And we face the challenges of life as free people, not as slaves. Jesus puts ground under our feet before he gives us mountains to climb. Now, the other point, and it comes out of our reading, is that change is positive. I don't know whether you noticed, but in that reading that Nicole read to us from Colossians, when Paul says to do something, to not do something, he tells you to do something else instead. It says, put off this, put on that. Don't do this, do that instead. You see, life is to be lived. It's about doing. It's not about not doing. And you only stop doing wrong things when you do good things instead. You can't get up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do anything wrong. Um, you can get up to say, I'm going to do right things today. Um, so don't try to not lie. Try to be a truth teller, to always tell the truth. If you aim to always tell the truth, you won't tell lies. Don't try to not be selfish. How can you not be selfish? You're thinking about yourself when you're trying to not be selfish, okay? Seek to serve others and think about others and you won't be selfish. Life is about what you do. And if you concentrate on the do's, you won't have time for the don'ts. C.S. Lewis wrote, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different to what it was before. Even when we make small choices, Something changes at the heart of our being. Choice changes us. And what's God's end game? What's his goal for us? Well, Jesus wants to make us into the people who's who are eventually going to inhabit the new earth, the kingdom of God, when it's fully realised. He, he's aiming to move us in that direction, and we need to be willing to go in that direction with God. That's a, you know, to to finally become those people 
uh, that new society when humans will live it peacefully with each other and the balance of nature will be restored. Jesus accepts us as we are, but he won't let us stay as we are. And that's why Jesus called people to repent. And you repent not once, but continually. When Jesus called people to repent in the Greek, it's a continual present tense. You start repenting and you keep repenting. You keep looking for things that need to change. And when you become aware of them, you work on them. Following Jesus involves a continual process of change. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you accept us just as we are. Thank you that you are gracious and good. Thank you that you hold the world in your hand and that your goodness ultimately comes through. Thank you, Father, for um, the various people we've talked about and the communities they represent and for the changes that have taken place. Thank you that you're working in our community. Help us to play our part. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thank you.